Welcome back, Hemming Brains. Nearly forgot to do the podcast again. Oh, I'm so... It's You know what it is? It's uh, last week, one or two weeks ago now nearly, I started working um, m- the winery where I work. I used to work sort of pre-COVID. Um, they grow cherries and they've just gone back to cherry season. Now, the winery's not open, so I haven't had any work there. And then suddenly... Cherry started up nearly two weeks ago, and it was just like, bam, straight into these like long, like nine, ten hour days of sorting cherries at a conveyor belt, and just, I think any work, even though this is like the easiest job in the world, um, any work after sort of ten months of no work, um, is just, oh, it's so exhausting, but this particular job is so mind-numbingly boring, that by the time I get home, my I, my brain is just completely fried from from just well just standing there all day. Like you wouldn't think that that would fry your brain, but uh, it's just like it's kind of like almost stressful to be that bored for that long. Uh, so um, like that's why the other day I just straight up forgot, and tonight I nearly forgot, and I've kind of been trying to organise what to do next and. I'm just making a whole mess of this. Like last, I forgot to post the thing last night and then I did it with a video today. All this stuff, I just keep messing everything up. Um, the good news is that cherry season is nearly over. I mean, that's sort of good news because I really am not having a good time doing it. But I suppose, you know, a bit of extra money is always handy. But um, I am really looking forward to just kind of having my brain back. <laughs> you know, I just feel like I don't have access to my brain at the moment. Anyway, okay, so um, let's talk about out of... S- no, wait. Oh, wait. Yeah, we've already talked about out of season. I suppose now we're going to talk about... Um, what's the current one? Uh, my old man. Hmm, says Swim said the Mama Fishy. So... You didn't give us a stopping point. I guess we will have to be big boys and girls and pick our own. Yeah, I think I'm going to do the whole thing. Also, the link is set on out of season, but I figured out one could press the right-hand arrow. Yep. Here are some fun facts. My old man is Hemingway's versions of one of... Wait a minute. I'm doing this backwards. I meant to read this story first. This is my brain. Honestly, it's gone. I don't have any brain left. Oh, the other good news is that this is the third short story. It's a long one. But after that, we go to poems, and the poems are literally 10-second reads. They're really short. So for the next 10 days after today, which will take me right through Christmas, I'm going to have very, very short reads, which means short podcasts, if I don't, you know, blabber, blabber mouth for 20 minutes. My Old Man goes like this. First published, summer 1923. I guess looking at it now, my old man was cut out for a fat guy, one of those regular little royally fat guys you see around, but he sure never got that way, except a little towards the last, and then it wasn't his fault. He was riding over the jumps only, and he could afford to carry plenty of weight then. I remember the way he'd pull on a rubber shirt over a couple of jerseys and a big sweatshirt over that and get me to run with him in the forenoon in the hot sun. He'd have maybe taken a trial trip with one of Razzo's skins early in the morning after just getting in from Torino at four o'clock in the morning and beating it out to the stables in a cab. And then with the dew all over everything and the sun just starting to get get going, 
I'd help him pull off his boots and he'd get into a pair of sneakers and all the sweaters and he'd start out. Come on, kid, he'd say, stepping up and down on his toes in front of the jock's dressing room. Let's get moving. Then we'd start off jogging round the infield once, maybe with him ahead running nice, and then turn out the gate and along one of those roads with all the trees along both sides of them that run out from San Suro. I'd go ahead of him when we hit the road and I could run pretty stout. I'd look around and he'd be jogging easy just behind me and after a little while I'd look around again and he'd begun to sweat. Sweating heavy and he'd just be clogging it along with his eyes on my back but when he'd catch me looking at him he'd grin and say sweating plenty. When my old man grinned nobody could help but grin too. We'd keep right on running out towards the mountains and then my old man would yell hey joe and i'd look back and he'd be sitting under a tree with a towel that he'd had around his waist wrapped around his neck i'd come back and sit beside him and he'd pull a rope out of his pocket and start skipping rope out in the sun with the sweat pouring off his face and him skipping rope out in the white dust with the rope going cloppity cloppity clop 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 and the sun hotter and him working harder up and down a patch of the road say so, Say it was a treat to see my old say it was a treat to see my old man skip rope too. He could wear it fast or lop it slow and fancy. Say you ought to have seen whoops look at us sometimes when they'd come by, going into town, walking along with big white steers hauling the cart. They sure looked as though they thought the old man was nuts. He'd start the rope whirring till they'd stop dead and still and watch him, then give the steers a cluck and poke with the goad and get going again. When I'd sit watching him working out in the hot sun, I sure felt fond of him. He was fun, and he'd done his work so hard, and he'd finish up with a regular whirring that'd drive the sweat out of his face like water, and then sling the rope at the tree, and come over and sit down with me, and lean back against the tree with the towel and sweater wrapped around his neck. Sure as hell keeping it down, Joe, he'd say, and lean back, <clears throat> and shut his eyes and breathe long and deep. It ain't like when you're a kid. Then he'd get up before he started to cool and we'd jog along back to the stables. That's the way it was keeping down to weight. He was worried all the time. Most jocks can just about ride off all they want to. A jock loses about a kilo every time he rides. But my old man was sort of dried out and he couldn't keep down his kilos without all that running. I remember once in San Siro, Rigoli, a little wop that was riding for Buzzoni, came out across the paddock, going to the bar for something cool and flicking his bouts with his whip. He'd after, after he'd just weighed in, and my old man had just weighed in too, and came out with a saddle under his arm, looking red-faced and tired, and too big for his silks, and he stood there looking at young Rigoli standing up to the outdoors bar, cool and kids looking, and I says, "'What's the matter, Dad?' because I thought maybe Rigoli had bumped him or something, and he just looked at Rigoli and said, oh, to hell with it, and he went on to the dressing room. Well, it would have been all right, maybe, if we'd stayed in Milan and ridden to Milan and Torino, because if there ever were any easy courses, it's those two. Pianola, Joe. My old man said when he dismounted in the winding, winning stall after what the Wops thought he was a hell of a steeplechase, I asked him once, this course rides itself. It's the pace you're going at that makes riding the jumps dangerous, Joe. We aren't going any pace here, They and they ain't any really bad jumps either. But it's the pace always, not the jumps, that makes the trouble. 
San Siro was the swellest course I'd ever seen, but the old man said it was a dog's life. Going back and forth between Mirafiori and San Siro and riding just about every day in the week with the train ride every night. I was nuts about the horses too. There's something about it when they come out and go up the track to the post, sort of a dancy and tight looking with a jock keeping a tight hold of them and maybe easing off a little and letting them run a little going up. Then once they were at the barrier, it got me worse than anything, especially at San Siro with that green, big green infield and the mountains way off and the fat wop starter with the big whip and the jocks fiddling them round and then the barrier snapping up and that bell going off and them all getting off in a bunch and then commencing to string out. You know the way a bunch of skins gets off. If you're up in the stand with a pair of glasses, all you see is them plunging off and then the bell goes off and it seems like it rings for a thousand years and then they come sweeping round the turn. There wasn't ever anything like it for me. But my old man said one day in the dressing room when he was getting into his street clothes, none of these things are horses, Joe. That'd kill the bunch of skates for their hides and hoofs up at Paris. That was the day he'd won the Premio Comercio with Lantorona, shooting her out the field the last hundred metres like pulling a cork out of a bottle. It was right after the Premio Comercio that we pulled out and left Italy, my old man in Holbrook and a fat wop in straw hat that kept wiping his face with a handkerchief were having an argument at the table in Galleria. They were all talking French and the two of them were after my old man about something. Finally, he didn't say anything any more, but just sat there and looked at Holbrook, and the two of them kept after him, first one talking and then the other, and the fat wop always butting in on Holbrook. You go out and buy me a sportsman, will you, Joe? My old man said, and handed me a couple of soldi without looking away from Holbrook. So I went out to the Galleria and walked over into the two in front of the Scala, and bought a paper and came back and stood a little way away because I didn't want to butt in and my old man was sitting back in his chair looking down at his coffee and fooling with a spoon and Holbrook and the big wop was standing and the big wop was wiping his face and shaking his head. And I came up and my old man acted just as though the two of them weren't standing there and said, want an ice, Joe? Holbrook looked down at my <clears throat> old man and said, slow and careful, you son of a bitch. And he and the fat wop went out through the tables. My old man sat there and sort of smiled at me, but his face was white and he looked sick as hell. And I was scared and felt sick inside because I knew something had happened and I didn't see how anybody could call my old man a son of a bitch and get away with it. My old man opened up the sportsman and studied the handicaps for a while. And then he said, you got to take a lot of things in this world, Joe. And three days later, we left Milan for good on the touring train for Paris after an auction sale out in front of the Turner's stables of everything, we couldn't get into a trunk or suitcase. And a suitcase, sorry. We got into Paris early in the morning in a long, dirty station. The old man told me it was the Gare de Lyon. Paris was an awful big town after Milan. Seems like in Milan everybody's going somewhere and all the trams run somewhere and there ain't any sort of a mix-up. But in Paris, it's all bowled up and they never do straighten it out. I got to like it though, part of it anyway, and say it's got the best race courses in the world. Seems as though that were the thing that keeps it all going and about the only thing you can figure on is that every day the buses will be going out to whatever track they're running at going right out through everything to the track. 
I never really got to know Paris well because I just came in about once or twice a week with the old man from Maisons and he always sat at the Café de la Paix on the opera side and the rest of the gang from Maisons and I guess that's one of the busiest parts of the town. But say, it is funny that a big town like Paris wouldn't have a Galleria, isn't it? Well, we went out to live at Maisons Lafitte where about just about everybody lives except the gang at Chantilly with a Mrs. Myers that runs a boarding house. Maisons is about the swellest place to live I've ever seen in all my life. The town ain't so much, but there's a lake and a swell forest that we used to go hunt off humming in all day. A couple of kids and my old man made me a slingshot and we got a lot of things with it, but the best was a magpie. Young Dick Atkinson shot a rabbit with it one day and we put it under a tree. And we're all sitting around and Dick had some cigarettes and all of a sudden the rabbit jumped up and beat it into the bush and we chased it but we couldn't find it. Gee, we had fun at Mason's. Mrs. Myers used to give me lunch in the morning and I'd he gone I'd be gone all day. I learned to talk French quick. It's an easy language. As soon as we got to Mason's my old man wrote to Milan for his license and he was pretty worried till it came. He used to sit around the Café de Paris in Maisons with the gang there. There were lots of guys he'd known when he rode up to Paris before the war lived at Maisons. And there's a lot of time to sit around because the work around a racing stable for the jocks, that is, is all cleaned up by 9 o'clock in the morning. They take the first batch of skins out to gallop them at 5.30 in the morning and they work the second lot at 8 o'clock. That means getting up early, all night, all right, and going to bed early too. If a jock is riding for somebody, too, he can't be boozing around because the trainer always has an eye on him. If he's a kid and he ain't a kid, he's always got an eye on himself. So mostly if a jock ain't working, he sits around the Café de Paris with a gang and they just can sit around all... can all and They can all sit around about two or three hours in front of some drink like a vermouth or a salts and they talk and tell stories and shoot pool, and it's sort of like a club or the Galleria in Milan, only you don't really like the Galleria because there's everybody is going by all the time and there's everybody around at the table. Well, my old man got his licenses all right. They sent it through to him without a word, and he rode a couple of times, amiens, up country and that sort of thing, but he didn't seem to get any engagement. Everybody liked him, and whenever I'd come into the cafe in the forenoon, I'd find somebody drinking with him, because my old man wasn't tight, like most of the doc jockeys that have got the first dollar they made riding at the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904. That's what my old man would say when he'd kid George Burns, but it seemed like everybody steered clear of giving my old man any mounts, we went out to wherever they were running every day with the car from Maisons, and that was the most fun of all. I was glad when the horses came back from Deauville in the summer, even though it meant no more humming in the woods, because then we'd ride to Einhein or Tremblay or St. Cloud and watch them from the trainers or jockeys stand. I sure learned about racing from going out with the gag. And the fun of it was going every day. I remember once at, out at St. Cloud, 
It was a big 200,000 franc race with seven entries and Kazar at a big favourite. I went around to the paddock to see the horses with my old man and you never saw such horses. The Kazar is a great big yellow horse that looks like just nothing but run. I never saw such a horse. He was being led around the paddock with his head down and when he went by me I felt all hollow inside. He was so beautiful. There never was such a wonderful, lean, running, built horse. And he went around the paddock, putting his feet just so, and quiet and careful and moving easy like he knew just what he had to do, and not jerking and standing up on his legs and getting wild-eyed like you see these selling platters with a shot of dope in them. The crowd was so thick I couldn't see him again except just his legs going by and some yellow, and my old man started out through the crowd and I followed him over the jock's dressing room back in the trees and there was a big crowd around there too but the man at the door in the derby nodded to my old man and we got in and everybody was sitting around and getting dressed and pulling shirts over their heads and pulling boots on and it all smelled hot and sweaty and liniminty and outside was the crowd looking in the old man went over and sat beside George Gardner that was getting into his plants and said What's the dope, George? Just an ordinary tone of voice, because there ain't any use him feeling around, because George either can tell him or he can't tell him. He won't win, George says, very very low, leaning over and buttoning the buttons of his shirt. Who will, my old man says, leaning over close so nobody can hear. Kirkubin, George says, and if he does, save me a couple of tickets. My old man says something in a... Why is this changed to tense? really weird my old man says something in a regular voice to george and george says don't ever bet on anything i tell you kidding like and we beat it out and threw all the crowd that was looking in over to the 100 franc mutual machine but i knew something big was up because george is kazar's jockey on the way he gets one of the yellow odds sheets with the starting prices on and kazar is only paying five for ten sephisiodote is next at three to one, and fifth down the list is Kirkubin at eight to one. My old man bets five thousand on Kirkubin to win and puts on a thousand to place. And we went around the back to the grandstand to go up the stairs and get a place to watch the race. We were jammed in tight, and first a man in a long coat with a grey tall hat and a whip folded up in his hands came out, and then one after another the horses with the jocks up and the stable boy holding the bridle on each side and walking along followed the old guy that big yellow horse Kazar came first he didn't look so big when you looked when you first looked at him until you saw the length of his legs and the whole way he's built and the way he moves gosh I never saw such a horse George Gardner was riding him and they moved along slow back of the old guy in the grey tall hat the walk that walked along like he was the ringmaster in a circus back of Kazar Moving along smooth and yellow in the sun was a good-looking black with a nice head with Tommy Archibald riding him, and after the black was a string of five or more horses all moving along slow in a procession past the grandstand and the passage. My old man said the black was Kirkubin, and I took a good look at him, and he was a nice-looking horse, all right, but nothing like Kazar. Ah, sorry, I lost my spot.
Everybody cheered Kazar when he went by, and he sure was one swell-looking horse. The procession of them went around on the other side past the Palouse, and then back up to the near end of the course, and the circus master had the stable boys turn them loose one after another, so they could gallop by the stands on their way up to the post and let everybody have a good look at them. They weren't at all... They weren't at the post hardly any time at all when the gong started, and you could see them way off across the infield, all in a bunch, starting on the first swing like a lot of little toy horses. I was watching them through the glasses, and Kazar was running well back with one of the bays making the pace. They swept down and around and came pounding past, and Kazar was way back when they passed us and this Kirkubin horse in front and going smooth. Gee, it's awful when they go by you and then you have to watch them go farther away and get smaller and smaller and then all bounced up in the turns and then come around towards into the stretch and you feel like swearing and god damning woman worse and worse. Finally they made the last turn and came into the straightway with this Kirkubin horse out in front. Everybody was looking funny and saying Kazar in a sort of sick way and they pounding near bro <sighs> down the stretch and you feel like swearing and goddamning worse and worse finally they made the last turn and came into the straightaway with the Kirkman horse out in front everybody was looking funny and saying Kazar in a sort of sick way and pounding nearer down the stretch and then something came out of the pack right into my glasses like a horse headed yellow streak and everybody began to yell Kazar as though they were crazy Kazar came on faster than I'd ever seen anything in my life and pulled up on Kirkubin. That was going fast as any black horse could go, with the jock flogging hell out of him with the guard. And they were right, dead, neck and neck for a second, but Kazar seemed going about twice as fast with those great jumps and that head out. But it was while they were neck and neck that they passed the winning post and when the numbers went up in the slots... The first one was two, and that meant Kirkubin had won. I felt all trembly and funny inside, and then we were all jammed in with the people going downstairs to stand in front of the board, where they'd post what Kirkubin paid. Honest watching the race, I'd forgot how much my old man had bet on Kirkubin. I'd wanted Kazar to win so damn hard, but now it was all over. It was swell to know we had a winner. Wasn't it a swell race, Dad, I said to him. He looked at me sort of funny with his derby on the back of his head. George Gardner's a swell jockey, all right, he said. I sure took a great jock to keep that Kazar horse from winning. <laughs> of course, I knew I, it was funny all the time, but my old man saying that right out like that sure took the kick all out of it for me, and I didn't get the real kick back again ever, even when they posted the numbers up on the board and the hell rang to pay off, and we saw that Kirkubin paid 67.5 for 10 all around people were saying, poor Kazar, poor Kazar, and I thought, I wish I were a jockey and could have rode him instead of that son of a bitch. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that was funny, thinking of George Gardner as a son of a bitch because I'd always liked him, and besides, he'd given us the winner, but I guess that's what he is, all right. My old man had a big lot of money after that race, and he took to coming into Paris oftener. If they raced at Tremblay, he'd have them drop him in the town on the way back to Maisons, and he'd sit, I'd sit out in front of the Café de la Paix and watch the people go by. It's funny sitting there, 
there's streams of people going by and all sorts of guys come up and want to sell you things and I'd love to sit there with my old man. That was when we'd have the most fun. Guys would come by selling funny rabbits that jumped if you squeezed a bulb and they'd come up to us and my old man would kid with them. We could talk. He could talk French just like English and all those kinds of guys knew him because you can always tell a jockey and then we always sat at the same table and they got used to seeing us there. There was there were guys selling matrimonial papers and girls selling rubber eggs. Then that when you squeezed them, a rooster came out of them and one old wormy looking guy that went by with postcards of Paris showing them to everybody and of course nobody ever bought any and then he would come back and show the underside of the pack and they would all be smutty postcards and lots of people would dig down and buy them. <laughs> Gee, I remember the funny people that used to go by. Girls around supper time looking for somebody to take them out to eat and they'd speak to my old man and he'd make some joke at them in French and they'd pat me on the head and go. Once there was an American woman sitting with her kid daughter at the next table to us and they were both eating ices. I kept looking at the girl and she was awfully good looking and I smiled at her and she smiled at me. But that was all that ever came of it because I looked for her mother and her every day and I made up ways that I was going to speak to her and I wondered if I got to know her if her mother would let me take her out to Atelier or Tremblay. But I never saw them either of them again. Anyway, I guess I wouldn't have been any good anyway because looking back on it, I remember the way I thought out would be best to speak to her was to say, pardon me, but perhaps I can give you a winner at the Einhein today. And after all, maybe she would have thought I, I was a tout instead of really trying to give her a winner. We'd sit at the Café de la Paix, my old man and me, and we had a big drag with the waiter because my old man drank whiskey and it cost five francs and that meant a good tip when the sauces were counted up. My old man was drinking more than I'd ever seen him, but he wasn't riding at all now, and besides, he said that whiskey kept his weight down, but I noticed he was putting it all on all right, just the same. He'd busted away from his old gang out in Maisons, and seemed to like just sitting around on the boulevard with me, but he was dropping money every day at the track. He'd felt sort of doleful after the last race, if he'd lost on the day, until we'd get to our table and have the first whiskey and then he'd be fine. He'd be reading the Paris sport and he'd look over at me and say, where's your girl, Joe? To kid me on account I had told him about the girl that day at the next table and I'd get red but I liked being kidded about her. It gave me a good feeling. Keep your eye peeled for her, Joe, he'd say. She'll be back. He'd ask me questions about things and some of the things I'd say. He'd laugh and then he'd get started talking about things about riding down in Egypt or at St. Moritz, and the ice before my mother died, and about during the war, when they had regular races down in the south of France without any purses, or betting or crowd or anything, just to keep the breed up. Regular races with the jocks riding hell out of the horses. Gee, I could listen to my old man talk by the hour, especially when he'd had a couple of so of drinks. He'd tell me about when he was a boy in Kentucky, and going soon hunting, and the old days in the States before everything went on the bum there, and he'd say, Joe, when we get a decent steak, you're going back there to the States and to a good school. What I get to go, what have I got, what have I get, what have I get to go back there to go to school for when everything's on the bum there, I'd ask him. What the hell? 
that's different, he'd say, and get the waiter over and pay the pile of sauces, and we'd get a taxi to the Gare Saint-Lazare and get on to train at the Masons. One day at Ortil, after a selling steeplechase, my old man bought in the winner for 30 francs. He had to bid a little to get him, but the stables let the horse go finally, and my old man had his permit and his colours in a week. Gee, I felt proud when my old man was an owner. He fixed it up for stable space with Charles Drake and cut out coming into Paris and started his running and sweating out again, and him and I were the whole stable gang. Our horse's name was Guilford. He was Irish bred and a nice sweet jumper. My old man figured that training him and riding him himself was a good investment. I was proud of everything, and I thought Guilford was as good a horse as Kazar. He was a good, solid jumper, a bay, with plenty of speed on the flat, if you asked him for it, and he was a nice-looking horse, too. Gee, I was fond of him. The first time he started with my old man up, he finished third in a 2,500-metre hurdle race, and when my old man got off him, all sweating and happy in the place stall, and went into way, I felt as proud of him as if the first race he'd ever placed. You see, when a guy ain't been riding for a long time, you can't make yourself really believe that he was ever rode. The whole thing was different now, because down in Milan, every big race, even big races, never seemed to make any difference to my old man. If he won, he wasn't either excited or anything. And now it was so, I couldn't hardly sleep the night before a race. I knew my old man was excited to even if he didn't show it. Excited too, even if you didn't show it. Riding for yourself makes an awful difference. Second time Guilford and my old man started was a rainy Sunday at Ortil and the Prix de Mire and a 4,500 metre steeplechase. As soon as he'd gone out, I beat it up in the stand with the new glasses my old man had bought for me to watch them. They started way over at the far end of the course and there was some trouble at the barrier. Something with goggle blinders on was making a great fuss and roaring around and busted the barrier. Once I could see my old man in our black jacket with a white cross and a black cap sitting up on the Guilford and patting him with his hand. Then they were off in a jump and out of sight behind the trees and the gong going for dear life and the parry material wickets rattling down. Gosh, I was so excited I was afraid to look at them, but I fixed the glasses on the place where they would come out back of the trees and then out they came with the old black jacket going third and they were all sailing over the jump like birds. Then they went out of sight again and then they came pounding out and down the hill and all going nice and sweet and easy and taking the fence smooth in a bunch of and moving away from us all solid. Looked as though you could walk across on their backs as they were all so hunched and going so smooth. They then ballied over the big double bullfinch and something came down. I couldn't see who it was. But in a minute the horse was up and galloping free in the field and all bust bunched still, sweeping around the long left turn in the straightaway. They jumped the stone wall and came jammed down the stretch toward the big water jump right in front of the stands. I saw them coming and hollered at my old man as he went by and he was leading by about a length and riding way out over and the light as a monkey and they were racing for the water jump. They took off over the big hedge of the water jump in a pack and then there was a crash and two horses pulled sideways out of it and kept on going and three others were piled up. I couldn't see my old man anywhere. One horse kneed himself up and the jock had hold of the bridle and mounted and went slamming on after the place money. The other horses was up and away by himself jerking his head and galloping with the bridle rein hanging and the jock staggered 
over to one side of the truck against the fence. Then Guilford rolled over to one side of my old man and got up and started to run on three legs with his hoof, with his off hoof dangling. And there was my old man lying there on the grass, flat out, with his face up and blood all over the side of his head. I ran down and stood down the stand and bumped into a jam of people and got to the rail and a cop grabbed me and held me and two big stretcher bearers were going out after my old man and around on the other side of the course I saw three horses strung away coming out of the trees and taking the jump. My old man was dead when they brought him in and while a doctor was listening to his heart with a thing plugged in his ears I heard a shot up the track that meant they'd killed Guilford. I lay down beside my old man when they carried the stretcher into the hospital and hung onto the stretcher and cried and cried and he looked so white and gone and so awfully dead. I couldn't help feeling that if my old man was dead maybe they didn't need to have shot Guilford. His hoof might have got well. I don't know. I loved my old man so much. Then a couple of guys came in and one of them patted me on the back and then went over and looked at my old man and then pulled sheet off the cot and spread it over him and the other was telephoning in French for them to send the ambulance to take him out to Maisons, and I couldn't stop crying, crying and choking, sort of, and George Gardner came in and sat down beside me on the floor and put his arm around me and says, Come on, Joe, old boy, get up, and we'll go out and wait for the ambulance. George and I went out the gate, and I was trying to stop bawling, and George wiped off my face with his handkerchief, and we were standing back a little ways while the crowd was going out, and of the gate and a couple of guys stopped near us while we were waiting for the crowd to get through the gate and one of them was counting a bunch of mutual tickets and he said well butcher got his all right the other guy said i don't give a good damn if he did the crook he had it coming to him on the stuff he's pulled i'll say he had said the other guy and tore the bunch of tickets in two and george gardner looked at me to see if i'd heard and i had all right and he said don't you listen to what those bums said joe your old man was one swell guy but i don't know seems like when they got started they don't leave a guy nothing all right there is that one. Oh, that was a bloody long story um all right oh, now we need to talk about it oh, i'm so tired i'm so tired um My old man is Hemingway's versions, says Susan the Motherfushy, quoting something, of one of Sherwood Anderson's best efforts, the widely reprinted I Wanted to Know Why, which had appeared two years earlier. Both stories are about horse riding and are told by boys in their own vernacular. In each case, the boy has to confront mature problems while undergoing the painful disillusionment of an old man he had been strongly attached to. It doesn't look like coincidence. The story is, by the way, one of the only two that has escaped the theft of the suitcase at the Gare de Lyon, Philip Young, Ernest Hemingway, a reconsideration. Um, cool. Um, anyway, let's just let's just leave it. It was a good story. I'm going to talk about it more tomorrow, but I'm too tired to use my brain right now. So uh, I'm just going to do that for tonight and see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Sorry for the dud conversation. <laughs> Uh, yeah, bye.